Brands on Brands. Hey everyone, this week we're talking to Stan Phelps all about his popular series of business and marketing books and how he used that to leverage and build a public speaking career. Check it out. In a world where content is king and your reputation is your brand, how do you build a brand that matters? Welcome to Brands on Brands, a home for those that think different and push their boundaries. This is where branding that matters lives. Now, here is your host, Brandon Berkmeyer. Hey, 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 what's up, everyone? Welcome to Brands on Brands. I'm Brandon Berkmeyer, and today we are talking to Stan Phelps. Stan Phelps is a Forbes contributor, TEDx speaker, IBM futurist, certified speaking professional, and the best-selling author of the popular Goldfish series, which is a series of business and marketing books, started with the popular one, Purple Goldfish, which is all about adding value and making it easier for customers. He's also an instructor for the ANA School of Marketing and Rutgers Business School. If you haven't checked out his Goldfish series of books, they're all based on colors and different elements. There's like the purple goldfish book, green, golden, blue, red, pink, yellow. He's got all the colors, all the topics, everything you'd need in your organization to thrive and move forward. We talk all about how he used that book series and his individual books to build his consulting and speaking career and generally the business of public speaking. All today and more on the show. Check it out. Brands on Brands. All right, let's get going. I'm excited to bring you our guest today, Stan Phelps, to the show. First off, Stan, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, excited to be here, Brent. Well, the reason I'm excited is we get to dive into a few different topics. We're going to play around today, but some of them being brand experience, which you're an expert at in a lot of different realms, the business of personal branding as well, going a little bit behind the scenes into what you've done for yourself, and the business of professional speaking, which is how we connected. First off, you've written a lot of books, and a lot of those books are grounded in this idea of connected in some way around a differentiated brand experience as the key to success in some way, shape, or form. So let's set that stage for the audience who don't exactly know maybe what that is to you. What is a differentiated brand experience, a differentiated experience, and why is that important? Yeah, so I call it DX, differentiated experience. And it's the idea that your brand today is no longer what you tell people it is. It's what your customer experience is. It's what your either yourself or your employees deliver. It's what you stand for. And most importantly, it's what your customers and employees tell others about their experience. And um, so the the main way to grow your business, this is not new information, is by growing through your current customers, right? Providing a great experience. So it's how do you do it in a way that makes you differentiated, but also makes you referable in the market? I like that. And, I, and you've used a metaphor, I think, to help people understand that better, which is now tied through all of the books that you've written, which is a metaphor of the goldfish. And right. I'd like you to explain that in your own words for everybody. But first, I'd like to start with a quote that you put in your Black Goldfish book from someone named Theodore Levitt, Ted Levitt. And it goes, the search for meaningful distinction is central to the marketing effort. If marketing is about anything, it's about achieving customer getting distinction by differentiating what you do and how you operate. All else is derivative of that and only that. So tell us about goldfish. Yeah, so goldfish, it's it's uh it's a metaphor for growth. And so when I when I started the book series, I created a project called the Purple Goldfish Project. And the goldfish was a little bit personal to me, Brandon, because my very first pet was a goldfish. Do you remember yours? It was also a fish. It was just me and my mom in the house. So we, it wasn't a goldfish, but it was like, you know, a fish tank with like angel fish and things like that. Yeah, it was fish. I was six 
I went to a carnival. I threw the ping pong ball and I won my, my very first pet. His name was Oscar. And, um, I remember Oscar was small. He was maybe like an inch and a half. And it turns out that goldfish on average grow to be three inches, which is roughly the size of your thumb. But I came to find out later in my life that the world's largest goldfish is almost 20 inches, right? That means it's six times the size of average, right? And some goldfish don't even grow to be average. They grow to be two inches. So now you're talking about 10 times the size. And so that intrigued me. Like, why do some grow to be normal and others grow to be kind of, you know, massive? And it turns out there are five reasons why that goldfish grows. And those same five reasons apply to you, Brandon, me, and anyone that's listening right now. And I'll I'll rifle through them as quick as I can. Most people have heard the first reason if you're a goldfish. Your growth is determined by the size of the bowl or the pond that you're in, right? And the bigger the bowl, the bigger the pond, the more you typically grow. So what is that, you know, for anyone in business? It's simply the market for your product or service. And the larger the market, the more you can grow. Does that make sense? Yep. The second one is the easiest one is if you're a goldfish, your growth is also determined by who, and I mean who by the amount of other goldfish in the bowl or the pond. And this one's an inverse relationship. So the more goldfish in the bowl or the pond, it tends to stunt your growth, makes it harder to grow, right? So in business, who are the other goldfish, right? Your competition. Um, And the more competition you have, the harder it's going to be to grow. The third one is, if you're a goldfish, is the quality of the surrounding environment that you're in. So the, the cloudiness of the water that they're in, the amount of nutrients that are in the water. And in business, that's simply, if you think kind of from a macro perspective, that outside environment is simply the economy. Right, your ability to get capital to grow your business, things like consumer confidence, people's willingness to purchase, all of those things influence your ability to grow. And it's stuff that you don't really have any control over, right? Number four, if you're a goldfish, is how you do in your first four months of life. So they're tiny when they're born, Brandon. They have 80 to 100 brothers and sisters when they're born right they're the top of a top of like a pin they're so small and so how they do in that critical first 4 months of life first 120 days will determine how big they ultimately get so in business what are you typically called your first 4 months of life startup yeah you're a startup or or if you launch a new product or a new service how it does in that critical time will influence how it will grow. So we've talked about the size of the bowl was the market, the other goldfish competition, the surrounding environment was the economy. Now we said how you do as a startup. Here's number five, genetic makeup. So what is a goldfish born with that separates it from all of the other goldfish? And the stronger their genes are, and the more separated they are, the bigger they typically get. Conversely, if their genes are weak and they're like everyone else, the less they typically grow. And so that's the that's the five reasons. And what I what I ask almost every audience I speak in front of, I go, assuming you've already been in business for more than four months, right? So you don't have control over that. Assuming you've already been in business, who controls the market? You don't, right? How about your competition? Not unless you're buying them. No one has control over the economy, right? If you do, please see me after this podcast, right? The only thing you control, and this is going to get back to the Ted Levitt quote, is how you differentiate 
what you do. That's the genetic makeup piece. And here's the thing. It's not just what you do. Because if we're being honest, there are other speakers like me. There are other people, Brandon, that provide the services that you do. But it's how you do it. And the experience that you provide for the customers you serve and why you do it, the how and the why, are the things that make you stand out. And so the goldfish is is merely a metaphor for growth via creating a differentiated experience. Yeah, I appreciate you laying that out. And and this is the, the premise of the whole first book, The Purple Goldfish. And I'd encourage the audience that if they are interested in that, to dive into that because in a podcast you're not going to get there but dive into that in the book itself you can go to stanphelps.com to find that book and understand it but i wanted to get through it because it's really the the starting point in the premise yeah there's the book right there the starting point in the premise for a lot of the other ideas and how you apply them and really if you had to, to to boil it down the words that you use a lot in the words i've seen are the little things and then you you take that the idea of the little things we can do and you apply it to all these different topics and industries and groups and say, okay, for this instance, how do we apply this thought process? Yeah. And that has become the series, which has become very popular. Now, I want to say in 2012, you wrote that first book. And we're going to pivot a little bit here to talk about your story. By 2015, you were a full-time speaker with 85 presentations per year. According to the internet, which you wrote yourself, so you might have lied, but if you didn't, these are true things. <laughs> hey, if it's on the internet, it has to be true. It has to be. Maybe it was 83 and you're like, let's round up to 85. It's a, it's a better looking number, but you know, we'll give you that. But maybe you round it down because you're that kind of guy. Either way, that's a lot. And I think something that speakers would aspire to. I mean, in fact, you wrote a whole book on speaking and presentation skills, but not the business of speaking. That was the pink goldfish. Right. But let's talk about that. What, and this is going to be a, you know, a random loft into the air for you to go any direction you want with. What is, would you say, the secret to your speaking business success in such a short amount of time? I think I try to kind of eat my own dog food. And for the clients I have to provide, a great experience for them. So I become a referable speaker. I find about 70% of the opportunities that I get are from direct referrals. And so this is a word of mouth business. You could create the greatest speaking reel in the history of the world. Nothing replaces Brandon was in the audience when Stan did a presentation and recommends me to a friend or a colleague that's looking for a speaker. And so the entire process of how you handle that professional engagement, I'm not a big fan of gigs because gigs are this idea that I show up and I do the same thing over and over again. I do paid professional speaking engagements, which means I spend the time to understand the audience I do interviews in advance. I tailor my presentation to that industry and down to that organization or association. I try to be easy to work with. I show up early. I stay as long as I can because I know that's the the greatest marketing that I do is when I'm on site at an event. And then simply in the beginning, it was it was trying to hustle and figure out where my message was relevant and where my people were. And when you're willing to hustle and you provide a good experience, you're bound to have success as a speaker. Well, let's talk about that. You say where your people were. What was that for you in the beginning? I don't know if you can remember that far back, but let's go, let's try. I, I, I can. So I, my first book was about you know, the customer and how customer experience was kind of the new battleground in marketing. And that was my purpose to get people to think differently about marketing. Because most people, when they think marketing, are not thinking about the customer. Who do you think they're thinking about, Brandon, when when you say marketing? 
I don't know, themselves? Well, marketing has always been typically about the prospect, right? Generating awareness, getting, you know, getting, get on people's radar, get them interested, managing them through the decision process, right? Getting them hopefully to be convert and become customers. You know, marketing was never about the customer. Yet, if you ask any business owner, owner, what's the most successful marketing that you do? And they all say what? Word of mouth, referral. In fact, second, that's like 86% of business owners say that. You know who comes in second? Google at 59%. Right. So here's the thing. You go, well, if that's the if that's your most successful form of marketing is referral and word of mouth, what is your referral and word of mouth strategy? What percentage of businesses do you think have a referral and word of mouth strategy? It's like none. Yeah, exactly. One percent. One one percent. You're telling me the most successful form of marketing that you do beyond anything that you pay for, you don't have a strategy for. And so my my calling, especially in the beginning, was to get people to think differently about their most valuable resource, right? Which is their current customers. And to get them to think about ways that they could go above and beyond the transaction, right? So much of business is about transactional, and I came across this word called lanyap, which is part of the reason why it's purple goldfish, because purple is one of the colors of Mardi Gras. And the word lanyap comes from New Orleans. Lanyap is this idea of doing a little more to go above and beyond the transaction to honor the relationship that you have with the customer, right? And it's that little something extra that you do to be re kind of sticky and rememberable for your customers and make you referable. And here's the thing that I think most people miss about your current customers is that if you work hard to create a new customer traditionally, they are nowhere near as valuable to you if they've been referred to you by a current customer, right? Research shows that if I've been referred to work with you, Brandon, over my lifetime, I spend up to twice the amount of money with you. I stay longer. I spend more. And because I've been referred myself, what am I more apt to do? Do the same thing. Refer other people. Yeah. Over my lifetime, I'll refer up to twice the amount of people than somebody that you traditionally acquire. And... um yeah, so that that was the focus. And again, everything I do in terms of trying to create an experience comes back to that. Yeah, and I think that I think your philosophies on this shine through in in your keynotes and in your books, and they can they can glean that. I, I think it's no better than when you're in person. When you're trying to apply that, though, how did you go about finding those first few, you know, ten speaking gigs or whatever else? Where you just networking in your local community were you reaching out to corporations like how did like i want to hear like the, the steps of the process because the philosophies they can nail down yeah so, so again i i need to define where are my people and i was a marketer i i had spent over two decades working in marketing i thought i had something that was lacking and that people needed to hear and my purpose was to get people to think at least as much about the customer than they did about the prospect. You know, to me, victory would be if 51% of what you're thinking about in marketing was about the experience that you created for your current customer. That to me would be a win. So to me, I went in the beginning, I was I was part of an organization called Meng, which is Marketing Executives Networking Group. And they had about 13 chapters around the country. And those chap, you know, associations and chapters are always putting on monthly or quarterly programs. And what do they need for those programs, Brandon? Speakers. They need speakers. 
right? And if you just look at the website, you know the cadence of when they do their meetings. And so I probably in my first you know, year and leading into making the jump, I probably spoke at nine of the 13 chapters. And then when I moved here to North Carolina, because again, I was a marketer, I, I did a lot of networking and went to a lot of events in the beginning, trying to find out again where my people were. And we have, you know, we're blessed to have one of the most successful AMA chapters, American Marketing Association chapters here in the country. And I joined and I became part of the board. And it turns out that there's about 75 chapters throughout the country. And again, that's my people. I've spoken at 70 of the 75. And the majority, vast majority are not paid speaking engagements. But there are opportunities to get in front of people that can potentially hire me, right? And so I just did a lot of hustling. And here's the thing. When you start to do a good job for a couple of chapters, what happens? They refer you to other chapters. The word spreads, right? Yeah. And especially if you're doing it pro bono, or maybe you're just doing it, you know, to cover your travel and expenses, you know, there's a lot of value that you're creating. And so it's it's fine to ask the organizer, hey, if I do a great job, you know, can you reach out to two or three other people and refer me and ask for the referral, right? You don't want them to do it if it's not genuine. But that was the way that I, I I kind of did it in the beginning. The other thing I did was I got referred to an organization called the ANA, which is the Association of National Advertisers. Again, marketers, my people. And they happen to have like a school of marketing training and development back in 2014. So I was just a year plus in. I co-created a course, like a half-day workshop, and then they have member organizations, and I probably do, on average, one workshop a month or every other month. And that was another way to get, you know, six to 10 to, you know, some years it could be 15 different engagements. Yeah. And so in the beginning, it's just a lot of hustle because there's no word of mouth for you. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine because those the those you know it's three different organizations. So I can imagine being a member in your local organization, but then the confidence to be like, well, then I did this one. Should I reach out to the chapter that's you know a state away? Uh, is it worth the travel to go get this speaking engagement? Did that take you a while to realize? Like, it was the first year pretty light on speaking engagements, and then suddenly it just clicked, and you started traveling across the country. You know, I realized if I was going to be a speaker, I had to do one thing. Speakers speak. And I remember my first three years, I created like a monthly newsletter that I would send to, you know, a couple thousand people that, that were part of my list. And every year, every month, when I sent that letter out, it was, where am I going to be the following month? And to me, that was a great accountability thing to want to make sure that I was writing four to six to eight events on there. Because what do speakers do? Speak. They speak. And very quickly, you start to understand, you know, when the busy times are versus the, you know, the peaks and the shoulders. And when you're on the the shoulder, you know, and this happens to be summer tends to be a shoulder, at least that's my experience, because people are on vacation, they're not doing corporate events, associations kind of stay away from the summer, that you need to manufacture stuff during those times. Same thing in, you know, December and January. And, and yeah, you know, to me, it was an easy sell if you've already done a great job for a number of chapters to say, look, I've done, 
Richmond, I've done Baltimore, I've done DC, I've done Charlotte. You're a known commodity. Why wouldn't somebody want to fit you into their schedule? So when you wrote the books, what came first, the fish or the fish egg? Was it the books or some of the speaking and then the speaking turned into I should write a book? How did it go for you? I don't think you need to have a book if you wanted to be a speaker. That said, and I'm all about differentiation, the fact that you have a book on the topic that you speak on is a huge differentiator. Now, should it be a differentiator? That's debatable, but it certainly is a a proof point of your commitment to that topic and specifically your take on that topic. So I had always had a goal since I was probably 20 years old that I wanted to write a book at some point in my life. In fact, I'm not alone because the research shows that about 80% of Americans, when asked that question, think they've got a book in them at some point. Percentage that get it done? That lonely 1%. (laughs) That lonely 1%. So I never saw in the beginning that it was ever going to be a series, though. Right. It was more of once you start to go down and go really deep on something, you know, your perspective and your thinking changes about that. And that first book, you know, I I thought it was all about the customer. What I realized by studying over a thousand examples that I crowdsourced is that the companies that truly got it, Brandon, didn't put the customer first. They put their employees first. And then I went, oh my God, I've got to do the same thing now and explore what are they doing to create that great workplace where you have engaged employees and you're reinforcing the culture? What are the things that you're doing beyond dollars? So that led to this idea of the green goldfish, which was a nice tie because green is also a color of Mardi Gras. And that led to gold because I had another aha moment. And then I I was doing some work for IBM and I saw the role technology, data and analytics was playing. And I did blue because that's all about redoing blue right now, just because of the role of AI and then so on and so forth. It's just been a journey. Um, And what was fun last year is when I wrote black, it really was kind of chronicling that journey of how my understanding has changed over a decade. So you writing the Black Goldfish book, does that mean you're done with goldfish books? Because it was a summary of all the different kind of things rolled up into one. Yeah, you, you get the color black, which is interesting. And if anyone has small kids, they would understand this. You get the color black when you put all of the other colors together, right? If you were remember from being a kid when you started to mix all the paint colors, right? You get a really dirty brown or a black, right? I don't know if there's another color, to be honest. You know, to me, the next decade is more about creating impact and less about thought leadership. I I want to be able to take what I've what I've created, Brandon, and I've created a, a vehicle for that called the goldfish tank which is um, combines kind of a keynote, a workshop, and a little bit of personalized coaching to get people to actually come up with impactful ideas and implementable ideas. And that's really the next decade for me is, is getting, getting people to create that impact. Like that. And I want to, I do want to talk about that more. The funny thing is you stole my next question, which was, will there ever be a robot goldfish book because of everything going on with AI, but you're just going to redo blue, blue 2.0. So there you go. Yeah. Working on blue 2.0, you know, again, I think it's going to be interesting because it's not a question of, or right. It's a question of, and how do you leverage technology, data analytics, AI, and use it to create that great experience. Yeah, so interesting, interesting stuff, yeah. 
How do you decide how much research goes into your books? I mean, you A, you put a ton of research into your first one. I know you've written that there's probably even more than you needed. Uh, you're like, I did a thousand and one interviews. I probably could have gotten away with 501 if I had done this again. <laughs> but you, I think research has been at the, the heart of a lot of these books, but you are still doing them once every year, which also seems like a choice that, you know, you could have milked the purple goldfish for at least three years before thinking about another book. So I'm curious about the research process and then just how you kept deciding, you know, I'm going to do another one in a year. You know, I really enjoy the research process. So the first two books, I did over a thousand examples. Now, not interviews, crowdsourced. So my research or people sharing examples. And we have a project online that we we add them to. What I really like is not so much that collecting process, but the idea of looking through all of the hundreds of examples. And the books that I do now, usually about 200 to 400 examples, I find is about all you need because you just start to repeat stuff. You don't need a thousand. And what I love is trying to see the patterns that develop and how I can create a framework around what I found from the research. And um, and so it's become a really repeatable process. And then I also realized that for a lot of the areas that I wanted to personally go into, I wasn't the expert. I wrote the first three on my own for the remaining, and there's some takedown and 2.0s, for the remaining books in the series, I've always had co-authors. And they bring that subject matter expertise that I don't have. Plus, it kind of helps share the lift of doing the research and the analysis and the writing. Does that explain it? It does. No, it does. And that's the research side of it. And then just one every year seems like probably at first... uh, was that planned? Was that just something that organically happened because you kept running into, well, this is a, a job I could have gotten if I had a book on this and I can easily speak to this. I have my ideas. I want to know, right. like, just that, not that you were just sitting on a rock and you kept getting inspired, but like the business side of this. You know, it definitely was not a plan. It just so happened that the first three years was three books and they were very tightly around both customer experience and employee engagement. And then in 2015, I didn't do a book. I did a TEDx talk. I became the president of the AMA Triangle. And then I I started the process of like partnering. And then it became more than one book a year. I was averaging more than two books a year. Yeah. In 2018, you had the pink, yellow, and you had a bar tricks book. <laughs> bar tricks, bad right. jokes, and even worse stories. <laughs> even in the, the year of the pandemic, I had, you know, Diamond came out in January, right right before the pandemic broke. And then uh, Silver, which is about speaking, came out also in, in May of 2020 on, on 5.5, which is the, the main premise of, of the Silver book. So I was on a path before the pandemic. I wanted to, I'm also a member of ATD, so I'm a big fan of training and development. So that's the Association of Training and Development. And so I wanted to do, at one point, a book that spanned every learning and development kind of main category. And I figured that there was about 15 to 20 of them. But the pandemic came along and, and that kind of shut down that that aspiration and probably rightly Rightly so, because I, you know, I had a book on ethics that was in the work. I had a book that was on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the works, a book on like advanced leadership topics like trust and and transparency. Who knows if I'll pick those back up at some point? But my focus again is less about now exploring new topics than it is about creating impact from what I've already developed. Well, I appreciate you saving some topics for the rest of us. Like that's, that's really <laughs> kind of you and generous. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about your 
actual presentations themselves, uh, the keynote speeches, the workshops. Once you had, you know, a speech, a book, how did you go about figuring out, like, how does the speech differ from the book? Uh, what are you saying in a keynote versus, you know, the ideas in the book themselves? Because you can't obviously get it all out in a presentation right. versus maybe how you structure a workshop. I'm curious how you think about those things for people who are out there, like trying to, to do those things. Yeah, I you know, the my books, I can't speak to other people's books. I try to follow a cadence of why, what and how. Does that make sense? So. All of the books, I feel like the first third of the book, I have to make the case of why should you pay attention to this? Why is this important? You know, there's all of the books are a little bit different, but they all come down to why a goldfish? So why differentiation? And why the color? What's the symbolism behind the color of the book? And then other reasons why you should care. And then the what is always what did we find? when we looked across hundreds of examples. And that's always the framework for the most part. You know, there's five ways to do it or there's nine ways and there's, you know, three by three by three. And that's that's the fun part of the book because it's all case studies and this is what we found. Here are the, the five best examples of this type. And then the, the third part of the book is is more of the how. So like, all right, well, I understand it's important. I understand the different ways you can do it, but where do I start, right? What's step one? What's step two? What's step three? And so when I do keynotes, predominantly the keynote is more focused on the why and the what. Does that make sense? This this is why it's important. This is what I found. In a keynote, you really, you give somebody, you change maybe their thinking, but there's not a lot of application in the keynote. So what I love about workshops is they tend to be smaller in terms of size and more facilitation, meaning that you're providing the audience the ability to not just learn, but then, you know, the framework I really like is what, what's called the lead framework. And I apologize. I don't know who created it, but essentially it's learn, exercise, application, discover, right? So in a keynote, I'm doing the learn bit. I'm sharing a concept and I'm showing kind of the examples, the E, like the case studies, but in the keynote, you don't get the application and you don't get the discovery. And so when I do workshops, it's more about the application. You know, here are some exercises that you can do to apply the principles, right? And then the D is about giving people time to think about, well, how do I, how would I do it in my business, right? I understand how to apply it. But how do I actually put it into, into effect for my very own business? And that's the, the D of discovery. What I like is that the, that framework, because obviously writing the book in that framework helps then frame the keynote and helps frame the workshops. But I like that just having the framework in general, you could early on, like maybe while the book's still in process, figure out your why for whatever your topic is. Why is this important? Why am I even doing this? And then right. you can start to source your examples and share those examples in your speeches and start to build, you know, this is what I'm finding so far and adjust your framework. So there's, we don't have to have the excuse of, I don't have a book yet to have something that you could be talking about and expanding on, whether that's in speeches or workshops or you know, interviews or yeah, and and that that type of stuff only makes the material better. So I'm always posting on LinkedIn or on my you know blogging about stuff while I'm creating it because the feedback I get while I do that improves it immensely. 
I like that. Quick question, tactically, is it common for a lot of your speaking engagements to include book purchases? And also, how often does a speaking engagement lead to like a workshop sale or, you know, a, a workshop client, a work speaking client turns into a workshop client, those kind of things. So trying to, the connectivity between these different resources that you build. Great question. So, you know, I, I always try to, if I can work with the client to understand their needs, right. And what they're trying to accomplish by bringing me in. Right. Sometimes it's just, we want to, we want to get people engaged. We want to entertain them. We want them to think a little differently. And that tends to be more of the keynote type of stuff. Like we want to get a little energy. We want to get them to think differently over the next day or two. And so I tend to always come back with options of what they can do, right? And usually almost always one of those options is, hey, would it make sense for everyone in that room to walk home with a book, right? We're going to talk about the big picture, but you want to give them something that they can refer back to, right? Maybe one out of every three or one out of every four clients will take that up as an option. And I love that because, again, that that book is going to sit potentially on somebody's shelf and then their spouse or their partner goes, oh, we're looking for somebody for this event. And somebody go, oh, let me go grab that book that I, I got. So I'm big on that. I also have, you've seen it. I've got these little scaled down versions that are called mini books, right? So sometimes I'll build that into the package. You know, I can hand carry these to an event. They're much cheaper. Then you know, putting out fifteen or twenty dollars for a book. Again, this is this you know includes my my business card in the back, which is really cool. So, and here's the thing: I almost even if they don't do the book, Brandon, because I go exclusive on Amazon. Amazon gives me five days each quarter to make my ebook free. So even if the client doesn't opt for a mini book or a full book, I'll often make the book free that day on Amazon as, and I'm trying to live my own you know, philosophy of doing a little something more for the client. And uh, again, allow them to go a little deeper, but also give them something that they have as a reference going forward. Yeah, oh, it's funny. You stole the words out of my mouth. I was like, it's going to be, how do you end up doing this for yourself? And I've experienced this, you know, like being other than just being generous with your time and when you meet people, because a lot of people do that. Just the idea that, hey, by the way, have you had, have you received this, you know, mini book or, you know, this version of this book based on whatever the conversation was? is helpful and useful. And I, I remember being like, no, it's fine. I'll go buy the regular book. You're like, no, take it. Just, I have them. I brought them. Have it. You know, have the the right. mini book, and that's I, I think definitely different. No one. I've been given books before, but I'd say even that the form factor is different. It's funny, is it costs them more than it costs you, but yours is more memorable because it's different. Right. Just for right. the fact that it's different, and it's almost a you've done me the favor of making it the Cliff Notes version instead of me having to figure out what the book's about because it's hard to read every book you get. So. Right. Yeah, I, I think you do live that live that out. Yeah. If we're being honest, I, I forget what the stat is. It's like shocking. Like even people that buy your book, like 60% of them never open the book. Yeah. Never open the book. So I tell people, I'm like, the average person reads one book a year. I'm like, you can feel really good about yourself when you bang through this. This is like a bathroom sitting book. Right. <laughs> Just make it, make it, make it, make it easy for them. Yeah. All right. I got two more questions. One, you'll have to forgive me for this. This one is how does having so many books? Yeah. How does having, how does having so many books help your business and potentially hurt your business as someone who's been, been through it? So I'm the antithesis of whatever I, 
whatever advice I would give to anyone who was thinking about following a similar path. Because I would tell you, focus on one thing, right? Focus on one industry and go really deep on that one thing and that one industry, right? There's somebody who's part of our chapter who just does work within construction management, right? I've never spoken for anybody in that industry, but this person's the go-to person for that industry. And it's because they've, you know, developed stuff around every aspect within that, within that vertical. And they probably do a 4X multiple of what I do speaking wise. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know if having excessive books hurts me. What's nice for me is that I love the variety of the, the organizations that I speak for. Right. So I was just having a conversation today with somebody in higher education. Later this afternoon, I'm having a conversation with a group. It's a, it's a law firm that I'll do their their offsite for all of their associates, partners and associates. You know, two weeks ago, I was working with somebody that's in the pharmaceutical and medical device space. The week before, I was with, you know, a grocer's association. I love that variety, but I wouldn't recommend that to to anyone else. Mm-hmm. So the last question, I, I appreciate that, that candor. The last question is, I noticed in one of the books, uh, you mentioned someone named Alan Hoffler. And you said he came along when you were at the beginning of your speaking journey. And you ended up having him as a coach. And I think coaching is huge for, for all of us, especially if we're trying to grow and actually step into something that might be a little difficult. I would love to hear your idea about, you know, how you think about coaching and mentorship in general, and then any stories or things that you picked up while working with Alan. So one, I think if you're going to be a great speaker, and here's the thing, everyone was a bad speaker before they became a great speaker. You know, that's one of the myths that, and by the way, I wrote Silver with Alan, which is really cool. Silver Goldfish. I wrote it with my coach. So Alan is somebody who (laughs) did not take my advice. He's all about effective communication. That's all he does. So presentation skills. And I was fortunate enough to be part of in a a group when I first moved here 11 years ago. And I met Alan. And Alan, just I learned so much from him along the way. And... um, Here's the thing. I I think if you are, and I I totally subscribe. This is Alan's philosophy. Alan would tell you that the word coach is derived from stagecoach, right? And it essentially, it's a vehicle, right? A vehicle that gets you from point A, you know, to to point uh, F, much quicker than you could get there if you were physically going to go on that journey yourself. And I love that as a metaphor for the role for the coach is that they could help you get there a lot faster and a lot easier. Not that you couldn't do it on your own, but they become a vehicle to get you there quicker by holding you accountable, by asking the right questions, by giving you the right feedback along the way. You know, I'm a much better speaker because I was willing to engage with with Alan as my coach. Love that. I love that. And just uh, gratitude in general, I've appreciated you offering yourself up as a mentor on my journey as well. So thank you for that. It's been been huge and having you here has been has been great as well. Any last parting thoughts leave it wide open for you things you're excited about or just final thoughts you want to share with the people listening today no so a couple of things i mean there were people that did the same thing that i'm my hope is i'm providing for you that 
that mentored me when I was on this journey. And that's one of the beautiful things about, uh, especially about the ethos of the National Speakers Association, is that there's this idea that we're not competitors, right? And our role is to not fight over, you know, a limited part of the pie, but our role is to help raise everyone and raise the profession up and make the pie bigger. And so I don't view anyone who's a speaker as a competitor. I view them as someone like me that has, for some reason, they've they've decided to go on this path because they've got something that they can share with other people. And if I can help them be more successful, I'm I'm helping a multitude of other people, you know, be part of that success. So, um, yeah, happy to do it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's my thought. Make the pie bigger. Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely enough room for all of us out there. That's why we create content like this for you to learn from and grow. And hopefully you found it as useful as I have. This was definitely a selfish episode where I am learning from Stan myself. I said, hey, if you're going to coach me, why don't we just do this with the, with everyone? So thanks for going on that ride with us today. And as always, go to www.stanphelps.com to check that out. The link will be in the show notes. And tune back in next week. Appreciate you all and catch you next time. You've just taken your marketing knowledge to another level with this episode of Brands on Brands. But we have plenty more ways to help you build a brand that matters. Head over to BrandsOnBrands.com for resources, as well as access to our blogs, videos, and exclusive coaching sessions with your host. Be sure to visit BrandsOnBrands.com.